Hey everybody, this is Fran Frischella and welcome to the world of basketball. You know what we do here, we shrink the globe so that we can bring you interesting guests from all over the uh, world. Uh, players, coaches, executives, media, we give, give you a whole taste of what is happening in the basketball world. Today we have a very special guest, John Hollinger, uh, basketball journalist, currently with The Athletic. Uh, also, we had John on today because he spent a number of years as vice president of basketball operations for the Memphis Grizzlies. And he gives us a really good insight on the draft, on uh, learning how to evaluate international players, of which there will be a number in this draft going in the first round. And uh, also, he's the inventor of PER, uh, the player efficiency rating that so many people use that uh, he came up with and uh it's really a cool conversation john is a basketball guru really he uh thinks the game uh and uh knows the game studies the game and so uh, we really will bring we'll bring you that podcast here shortly i'm in uh nbc sports headquarters uh in stanford connecticut where we are broadcasting the olympic basketball tournament uh, my partner, Kate Scott, and I are doing many of the games, not including the United States. That's being handled by Vince Carter and Bob Fitzgerald over in Tokyo. It's been an interesting week so far because, as you already know, Team USA started out this tournament with a loss to France, uh, coupled with a win against Iran. And uh, seemingly now, as I see this tournament, there are four legitimate uh, gold medal contenders spain australia uh, the united states and of course france who's now 2-0 in uh, usa's pool uh the the wild card would have to be slovenia with luka Doncic putting on one of the great performances in olympic history coming seven points shy of uh, oscar schmidt's 55 point uh, olympic record with a 48 point uh, performance uh in his opening game just a remarkable uh a remarkable game by Luka Doncic, just outstanding. 31 in the first half, and he is must-watch TV. Uh, Team USA, uh, as I've said many times in the last few weeks, we have the most talent, there's no question. But when I watch these teams closely, uh, the Australias, the Frances, and the Spains, they are cohesive. They have connection. In many cases, they have been playing together for 10 years. Not an excuse, just a fact. Uh, the FIBA rules are different. Team USA is getting used to that as well. And to my point of view, they are still among the favorites and, and can win the gold. There's no question. But they will have to overcome uh, the chemistry and culture of some of the top teams in this field as well and find some culture and chemistry as well. I think everybody on Team USA is learning or relearning the FIBA game, including head coach Greg Popovich. Uh, who on Sunday um, made a couple moves that I probably wouldn't have been in, in agreement with. One was keeping Kevin Durant in uh, with two fouls in the first half. He picked up his third. Oftentimes, uh, wouldn't surprise me at all if Coach Pop just forgot that there's a five-foul uh, uh, disqualification in FIBA as opposed to six in the NBA. He's only coached 2,000 NBA games, so uh, it's entirely possible. The other thing I thought is when you free switch at five positions against some of these teams uh, that are so cohesive and have the so many answers to the puzzle through the years, um, it can really hurt you. Switching re requires a lot of practice and communication. We haven't had the practice for sure. And Rudy Gobert, Mustafa Fall, and even Poirier hurt USA uh, with uh, USA switching. And quite frankly, when Zach Lafine or Damian Lillard, no matter how good offensive players they are, are switched on to Rudy Gobert. That's an issue. So we'll see. We'll figure it out. Uh, otherwise, it's a it's going to be a terrific next nine or so days when we crown the gold medal champion on uh, August 7th. And I'm having a blast. I'm not getting a lot of sleep, but uh, that's OK, because this is what I signed up for. And I just love watching international hoops. So uh, with that. Here is a great conversation with the athletics, John Hollinger. Thank you so much for coming on, on short notice, by the way. 
Well, th- thanks for having me on the show. And I'm just upset that we can't be doing this in Treviso, Italy. Oh, man. Tell me about it. One of the greatest places and 12 great years of my life. I tell everybody who was part of that, those, those years, John, and you were over there a number of times, there'll never be a camp like that again. Mm-hmm. Uh, the camaraderie, exactly. the friendship, uh, the food, the players. And uh, many of those guys are actually playing in, the, in these Olympic Games. So it, it's kind of cool. Um, I, that's what's kind of exciting me as I get ready to call some of the games here in, uh, in, uh, for NBC. Hey, let me ask you a, fir- a first question. Um, I mentioned your background. When you, when you were growing up, I, I think uh, in northern Jersey, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. Um, were, you, were you planning to be a journalist first or a basketball guy first? I don't know if I was planning on either of them. I, I don't know if I had it that laid out, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You went I was Virginia. just a sports junkie and I was just interested. And, uh, you know, I, st- I, my, my indoctrination into the an- analytics world was Bill James's baseball abstract books. And, but I was, I was a hoop junkie. I gravitated to it because it was the, it was, the, it was my own best sport. So obviously, you know, you sort of gravitate in that direction. And so that got my brain, the wheels of my brain turning about how can I apply some of this to the world of basketball? And I would sort of mess around and noodle around with things in my spare time. I, I, I never in a million years thought it would like lead to this as a career. Um, and just, uh, you know, through college, in my early 20s and whatever. And I, st- I started making a website about it because um, this thing came, called the Internet came along. So the, the word blog didn't exist yet, but I made a blog about about uh, basketball and basketball stats and uh one one thing led to another, and then I got I got hired uh, at the Oregonian, and I got a book deal, and and we were off to the races. Crazy. So so like many people in all different sports and walks of life, Bill James, we 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 all knew Bill James. Um, I was a baseball nut growing up, but we didn't. Bill James didn't come into my consciousness probably until the nineties. Um, so you, but but Bill James is. Uh, uh, just the, the analytical journey co- kind of caused you to think in the basketball direction because you later came up with this, something that's still being used called PER. Yeah. Um, so tell me how PER, how, how did you formulate this? Like what, what's the was, genesis of PER? I was really frustrated looking at basketball stats because I felt like they didn't make it easy to do comparisons. And obviously the, the fan in me was interested in is player X better than player Y should player X be starting ahead of player Y those, those types of questions. And the numbers we had for basketball, first of all, it was all per game averages back then. So immediately they were, they were heavily skewed by how many minutes a player played and what, what pace a player's team played at. So how do you get these numbers and apples to apples comparisons? And then how do you how do you make the comparisons kind of more fair by um, you know weighing different strengths in different categories against each other? And that was a little more complicated and and took some trial and error before I really got to something that I was a happy with and b I could explain mathematically in a in a linear way and and not trip over my own feet doing it. Um, and I finally got to that point and, and I'm surprised it stuck around so long. Cause it's a pretty long laborious formula yes. actually. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, I always thought that, you know, I came up with this thing and it'll be around for a couple of years and then someone else will come up with something better. And, uh, I, I do sort of think we're finally at the point where people are coming up with things that are better, but it's, it's, you know, it's old enough to drive now. Like I, I just never, I just never imagined that, that it would be, kind of this big a deal for this long. As you were putting together your, your formulas, did you, did you seek the advice of ba- basketball people? Like, you know, like, would you, would you confide in a, somebody that was coaching or a player or, and, and say, Hey, what's, what's important to you guys? Now, like, how did that, how did that come about? It, it was just completely right. I didn't have those relationships at the time where I could, where I could do that. I mean, I could, I could ask some guys I was playing pickup with, I guess, but like, you know, I didn't, I, there wasn't, you know, I didn't have access to like people in the NBA or whatever, could just be like, Hey, what do you think of this? So, so in a way it was good because I, I just kind of ran with it and, 
because I didn't have any kind of reputation, wasn't famous or anything like I could kind of put it out there online and, you know, 20 people would see it or whatever, but I could, you know, I, it, it gave me the time to really tweak it and, and get, get it to the point where, where I was happy with it, was able to build something enduring. So, so it was a blessing in a way. My anonymity was a blessing in a way, I guess. It's like a young coach coaching in low major. I always said, like, when I was coaching in Manhattan, I could make a ton of mistakes and no one would ever know about it. But if I made those same mistakes on a bigger stage, people would say, he's an idiot. I mean, you. Right. Or like coaching a national U18 team or something. Yeah. 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 Where you you get the rep. I mean, I actually think that's like, even from the NBA level, you see a lot more teams looking at guys who coached in the G League just because, like, you, you, you get you get those reps. You really do. And it's, it's actually the same thing for a writer in a lot of ways. Like just just like, you know, getting out there, just just blogging stuff and getting your thoughts that like you, you you get those reps and you and you get used to dealing with the feedback at kind of a at kind of a low level before you're putting something out there that 100,000 people are going to see. Or when you see a guy go to The Washington Post, like maybe in his early 20s and you know, like I remember there was the incident with the plagiarism. All of a sudden, someone who doesn't have the experience is at the highest level and his career ends because he's not ready for the, he hadn't had the reps, like you're saying, of working in Oregon or Boise or places like that. One last thing on PER, because these are all separate subjects I could talk to you for hours about. I mean, I could talk to you for hours about a lot of basketball stuff. Um, but P, when was the first time PER like jumped on the national, like when you're like, you're, it's your baby. So where did it pop up and you go, Oh my God, I can't believe it's in, you know, you know, ESPN or you remember. I'm trying to remember the first time it really popped up as a national thing. I think, I mean, probably around the time my book came out, uh, you know, when I got the contract to do pro basketball, uh, forecast because then, then I think more people saw it and, you know, like, look, in, in terms of how much, how many copies this book sold, it, you know, like my parents bought it and like four other people, but the, the thing was that the, the people who did end up with copies of the book of this book were all like the right people. Like they were all, they're all like, you know, people who worked in the NBA who were, or who were tangentially affiliated with the NBA. And so they, you know, and so those people started getting in touch with me and asking about it. And that's when I knew that, that I had hit on something. Yeah, that's cool. That is really cool. All right. Um, cause we're not going to, we're, we're going to jump around cause I really want to talk about international hoops with you. Cause you have a unique perspective. How did you make the trans? I remember when you left ESPN to go to the Grizzlies. Um, how did that all come about? Uh, and how did you make the transition to a, a front office? Yeah. So, yeah, that was an interesting time because there was definitely a phase there in the early 2010s where teams were hiring analytics guys, but it felt like a lot of teams were doing it to sort of check the box and say they had an analytics guy, but they weren't really. Yeah. Like, like, like they weren't all in. Yeah, they weren't all, they weren't all in. It wasn't like a core thing for them. It was like, all right, my owner's asking about this. Let me just hire somebody. Um, I had had a relationship with uh, Jason Levian, uh, who was a player agent at the time. And it was basically because he was the only agent who really approached me about asking about analytics in reference to his players for upcoming negotiations. And so that, that, that was how I, I got to know him. And uh, so when he uh, transitioned over to, um, and uh, I guess he was first in, in Sacramento, but then he went to, Memphis with the new ownership group, um, you know, he contacted me and asked and wanted to bring me in. And one of the key things was, I think he wanted to bring me in at a level where I, where I knew I would be a key decision maker. And it wasn't just, they were checking the box for the analytics guy. Um, and so that was really enticing to me. Now, obviously a lot, a lot changed pretty quickly after that, because, you know, the, it's, it's the NBA. This is what happens. Right. <laughs> and, uh, so, you know, ownership made a change and they brought in Chris Wallace and I ended up working with, with Chris for the last five years I was there, but yeah, yeah I mean, it was a pretty amazing kind of seven year journey. What did, um, what did you like, what did you learn from your front office experiences? Let's take the politics out of it. Cause we know in the end, sure. but what did you learn basketball wise from your front office experiences that you didn't know before you went to a, a position, you know, in an NBA front office? 
Um, I, you know, I, I think I learned a little more just about how the sausage gets made on, on trades and, uh, and, and, and the, the draft and kind of the, the process of, of the season and what it's, and what it's like from the, from the front office side. Um, and just how much kind of random stuff you don't think about goes into just the day-to-day operation of a basketball team, you know, well, we'll, we'll spend, you know, we'll spend a full day at some point in the summer in a meeting going over what hotels we're staying in that following season. Like it's it's just stuff people don't think about, you know? Uh, And, and so there's a lot of that kind of, kind of boring nitty gritty that goes into, I mean, everybody wants to, you know, be the fantasy GM and, you know, make trades right away uh, and blockbuster deals or whatever. And that's not really how it works. Um, I, I guess, you know, that, that was probably another big learning, just like the kind of the rhythm and the dance of, of how trade talks work. And, and it's different with every team because the NBA is really, it's 30 mom and pop shops, even though they don't, you know, they present as this big, huge enterprise and but learning kind of how the conversations the information gathering and how much back and forth and time goes into it until you can get to the point where you can make one call on trade deadline day and know that like okay I think this will get this done and that like there's so much that leads up to that yeah how did you um uh, how, how did this, this is where I really want to go with this? Cause it is world of basketball. How did you came to the NBA at a time where we were all, I mean, I mean like me as a media guy and now you're back in the media, but even the NBA friends I know, knew then this is like 10, the last 10 or 15 years, we were all acclimating ourselves to international basketball. All of us. Sure. It was a different language. Really. Um, we didn't know what translated. Now we do. I think we, obviously we do a quarter of the league is born outside of the United States. How did you, as a basketball person, as a guy that, you know, I studied the game really on top of the analytics, how did you learn and acclimate yourself to international hoops? Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, from the analytics side, it was hard because what you want to do is be able to say, okay, putting up X stats in the Euro league equals X in the NBA. And what you find is, especially for perimeter players, that your sample size is so small that a lot of times you can't like, you can't even really make the the translation the way you want to. So it's, it's a little more eye testy that way. Um, I, I would say I, like, I, I still think a lot of teams kind of underinvested in, in having a process and a scouting operation over there. And, and I think it, it hurt those teams. Um, It's, it's interesting. I mean, most teams kind of have at least one person who's permanently in Europe going around seeing games. This year was a little different, obviously, yeah. even for the Europe based scouts, they exactly. couldn't get yeah. to games. Exactly. Um, and then the idea is you have the executives come over, you know, kind of do rotations ideally during the course of the year so that they get eyes on these guys and have some familiarity with them. I mean, you saw me obviously over there in Treviso and then I would always try to do a trip in the winter too, it's, it's always tough coordinating that like scheduling yourself is actually one of the most difficult things in an NBA front office, because you're, you're trying to get out and see players during the course of the season, but you have to keep tabs in your own team. You have to be around for the trade deadline. Uh, like, like there's certain moments where you just can't leave, but uh, so, you know, you had, you end up going to Serbia in January and, right. know, a, and going I, all I, kingdom, I would, going all, all over kingdom come, you know, that, that's one thing I think fans don't realize like these European yeah. trips, if you're in the front office, if you're doing it yeah. right, yeah. like this, isn't, this isn't vacation, oh, right? Great. Like you're changing countries every single day because yeah. you have to go where the games are right. and, and they don't make the schedule with your comfort in mind. <laughs> I understand completely. Did you ever get to a comfort level with analytics? As it like, did you ever get the, and, and do you think anybody has gotten the translation between let's say, you know, Euro league and NBA now is a little easier because we, we all understand how good the Euro league is, but how did you, how did you use the analytics in the mid-level leagues, the Francis, the Adriatic yeah, league? Pro- pro- probably more to rule guys out than rule guys in, uh, which is kind of the way a lot of people use it in the G league too which is, which is like, well, if you're, you know, if you're the 
eighth best player on your team in this league, then what are you going to be in the NBA? Right. So I, I think from, 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 I think it's probably used more as an eliminator where I, more, more than something to say, Oh my God, like we gotta, we gotta drop everything and look at, it was interesting. We, we did have a couple players who kind of, who kind of popped in our, our analytic methods that were in lower level leagues. And, and I would go, I actually made special trips to see them and, and I'm trying, it was two or three guys. And each time when I saw them in person, I was like, yeah, that's, <laughs> this ain't it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. But, but, but the, do you think now team, like, let's take yourself. Do you now have a comfort level with the, with the Euro league? Like I, I, I tried to tell people uh, when Doncic was coming out, but, and by the way, I thought Aiden was one Doncic was two. I'm going on, going on record. But the thing I did learn about Doncic was I would talk to the American players in ACB and EuroLeague. Like as a, as a college basketball analyst, I often got to know these kids obviously. And then they go over and play overseas and, you know, the one thing everybody said was, oh, he's definitely going to be a very good NBA player. Like, um, do, do you have do you have a good feel now for the EuroLeague? I mean, obviously, I think we do. But how did, how did your feel for the EuroLeague come come along to where there's a comfort level in the translation? Yeah, I, I think it got better. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, st- I'm still not sure. Uh uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't want to overrate myself here. Like uh, <laughs> um, the, 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 the thing I always tell people is in, in Europe, the size always translates and you have to worry about the speed. Like these, the lineups of these, especially the higher level European teams, like they're huge. Like, so when you see a guy on tape and he looks like he's a shooting guard, like he's a shooting guard, like don't, don't worry about it. And college is kind of the opposite where, you worry that this guy's going to look small once he gets on an NBA court, but generally the, like the speed element do, does translate. Like when, when you see the guy zipping up and down, it's like, okay, he's going to do that in NBA court too. Uh, he, he just might look, you know, half a foot shorter once he gets out there. So I, it's, it's, it's almost the opposite in that way. Um, and then it's, it's interesting, too, because, I mean, Luca was such an unusual situation because there's actually been very few high-level perimeter players to come from Europe. So I think we, we were kind of in new territory there where even the, even the Europeans that we had looked at before that were perimeter players were more guys that people were seeing as role players. You know, it was the, uh, the Bogdanoviches, for example. or um, And, you know, I, I guess Dennis Schroeder would be the one – example and but the, i mean even that was like 2013 right so we we just didn't have a lot of a lot of priors there t- to go by in terms of what does this mean that this guy is you know is doing the things he's doing and then i mean obviously luca luca was another weird situation too because his his best basketball did not come in the lead up to the draft i mean people forget that part and, and so that, that I think created some fuzziness around his evaluation too, especially like if, you know, some, some people, like a lot of times the scouts will see the guys first and then the execs will get over and see them late, especially after a team is eliminated from the playoffs. And, you know, you, you remember Fran, I mean, April, May of that year, like Lucas team won the EuroLeague, but he did not exactly shine in those games. So it, yeah. it, uh, it, it definitely was a little bit of a confounding factor, I think. You know what's interesting about that, and and I think Donnie Nelson and Mark Cuban did a good job with this. If as I recall, the bat the, the Eurobasket was 17, 2017 when Slovenia, you know, yeah. shocked everybody in Europe with Dragic and and Doncic and Anthony Randolph. As I recall, like Luca went like 24 straight months of not really having a lot of time off because he went from national team to the crazy schedule that you play yeah. at Real Madrid. And um, Eric Pascal did this in a smaller way. I remember at the end of his uh, senior year at Villanova, he didn't play well and he was exhausted because mm-hmm. they were using, it was after the championship year and he was playing him so much. Jay Wright had to play him so much that his best basketball was played early. And I think people missed a boat on him. And now obviously he's an average NBA player. Uh, had yeah. a good rookie year, but it, to your point about Luca, it's a great, it's a, it's a great point because he had played for so long 
and played so many games, much like Jokic has just done. He played, I counted, John, Jokic played 109 regular season games in 10 months this past year. Wow. Because you know how the bubble was into yeah. the regular season. And I remember the summer Luca came over, um, Donnie and, and Mark shut him down. Mm-hmm. There was no summer league. He got fat. And yeah. I, I told people, even, even in his rookie year, wait till he gets in shape because mm-hmm. they didn't want to drive him into the ground is my point. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, it, you know, it ended up being really smart on their part. And to your point, it's it's really an interesting point because a lot of times the guys on the ground that are really good evaluators over there, they might really believe in a guy, but the GM might not see him until May or June before the draft and they don't have a, as good a feel. yeah. Yeah, that's I, like I always felt in the front office, I was really important to get out there during the course of the year um, and kind of have mul- multiple points. And you, you couldn't just wait till the spring. I mean, obviously, I mean, on the front office side, you're hoping too that you're actually going to be in the playoffs and making a run. So it's so it's harder to get over. But, uh, it, you know, these every, basically every team that misses the playoffs, the first thing their GMs do once they're done with their exit interviews, or whatever, they all go over to Europe in a in typical year and spend like a week and a half over there. So like those games in, in late April end up counting double a lot of times for, for the draft stock. And, uh, it, you know, it's a, so you have to be a little careful with, with how you do that on the team side. And, and like I said, make, make sure you're getting those evals in during the course of the year too, as hard as it's as, as hard as it is. What, what a lot of guys actually, um, as I talk to colleagues around the league, like to do, I never was quite able to set up my schedule to do this, unfortunately, is go over in October while your team's in training camp. And, uh, you know, they start playing real games in October over there. So you, you can actually get some stuff done before the, you know, before the clock starts on your own season, which is really nice. If you were, if you were a GM of a team today, how, how would you set up your international uh, scouting staff? Like, if, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's become different, I think, because um, because now you have Australia and China are a more, more prominent part of it than they used to be. Um, I I mean I I think ideally you would have you would have two two guys based in Europe. Um, what one of the I mean one of the one of the hardest things I talked to, especially like during the Lamelo year, um, talking to teams like they were all driving themselves crazy trying to figure out. How do you do in Australia? I mean, it's a 15 hour flight or whatever from LA to Sydney, you know, and back just getting down there. I mean, Fran, when I flew down there, I watched the entire Godfather trilogy. And then I looked up and my flight's only half over. Okay. Like it is a long, long day just getting over there. And then what you're going to play, like your guy's going to play twice in six days, right? Like, what do you, what do you do? You feel like you're just setting time on fire that, that you don't have. So it's, it's a really confounding thing, I think for, uh, for front office personnel, but uh, I, I, I think I think we're to the point where you, where you, where you have to have multiple international people, um, and then you as a staff, I think you know as as a North America based staff have to have that commitment that you're going to have a rotation to get over there and and see guys and get down under and 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 see guys too, and that's really how you do it. And obviously there are events during the year that help with that. I mean, the hoop summit, the whole league shows up because it's one-stop shopping, right? Treviso, uh, you know, may it rest in peace was always amazing for that. Cause we could, we could go over there, you know, for four days, see a bunch of European players, eat great food, have some cappuccino. Yeah. It was beautiful. Yeah. Um, and I also he, felt John about Treviso is you could eliminate guys. Oh, totally. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. You, so you knew the next year, well, we don't really have to make a special trip to go see a kid like the next fall, you know, like, yeah, exactly. Gave you the head start on eliminating some guys too, which I think, yeah. I, yeah. I think probably is value. Cause then you're not on a wild goose chase. Yeah. And then a lot of these U number tournaments, U18, right. U19 are really helpful that the problem is they all tend to be in June and July when yeah. every executive is running around with his hair on fire. So usually yeah. your, your Europe-based scouts are the only people who end up seeing those. Yeah. Well, you, I'm just curious because um, I know a lot of you guys would come and go and rotate trips over there. Were you, were you, in, were you in Treviso the Giannis year that 13 when everybody. Yeah, I was. There? Yeah. And yeah. I drove. So yeah. Cause a bunch of us drove over to a little <laughs> town, right. To, yes. To watch it's him. called Yesolo. It's a little beach town. If you remember. Yes. 
It's kind of yes. like being in Rhode Island, actually, in the summertime. <laughs> you know, because this is so curious, because I tell everybody, as I recall, I thought this is my first impression of Giannis. It was really the first time any of us saw him. Yeah. He had just gotten the passport. By mm-hmm. some coincidence, John, the tournament, the under 20 tournament was 45 minutes from Treviso, right? I mean, just, yeah. it was serendipity, really. And yeah. I remember being there three nights thinking, this kid's pretty good. He's good. He's an yeah. NBA player. He's only 6'8", maybe 6'9". He knows how to play. That, that was, was the big thing that struck me actually watching him was that yeah. it, like, it wasn't just like, oh, he's, he's really long and maybe five years right. and he can be something. It was like, yeah. okay, this, this, like, this guy actually knows what he's doing out here. Like, yeah. Yeah. It, he, has, he has a feel for the game. So that was that was the part that struck me yeah. uh, watch, watch, watching him there. But, yeah, it was funny. It was, it was basically a caravan. Of, the, the, the crowd in that arena that night had to be at least 75% NBA personnel, right? Like, I, I don't know that there were any other, like, paying customers, like, oh, out, yeah. outside of us. We were right? all trying to figure out, okay, we've seen it. We've seen the game. We think this kid's going to be really good or, or and certainly not to where he is. I I had. You know, yeah. but then we were thinking about where can we go get a bite to eat afterwards? <laughs> you know, what, but what was your general impression that you can go back and recall? And by the way, where were the Grizzlies picking that year? I'm curious. We weren't picking anywhere. Okay. We had the we only had a second that okay. year. Okay, we had good. the 41st pick, I think. We ended up taking Jamal Franklin out of San Diego State. Yeah. So yep. yeah, we I mean, so we didn't we didn't think we were gonna be in in the game yeah. for him. Anyway, um, it, we we did actually have somebody go on a on a special trip to watch him play in the Greek league after yeah. that, yeah. Uh, and and evaluate him a little more deeply. But yeah. we we never really thought we were going to be in the game for him. What what was your? Uh, you gave me a little taste of it. What was your general impression that you can remember, like when you watched him? Yeah, I mean, it was it was it was that he 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 was long. I mean, obviously we didn't know he'd get this big and keep growing or whatever. Nobody. Um, But you know, he had some length, some guard skills, kind of knew how to play Uh, still needed to improve his, his skill level still was kind of pretty rough around the edges. And then the other part was you looked at the competition he was playing against and you're like, okay, how does this, how does, how does this scale? I mean, that, that was the toughest part of evaluating him. It was kind of similar to Pokashevsky last year where he's playing in like the Greek second division. So you watch him do stuff and you just wonder, you know, how, how does that translate against NBA caliber talent and, exactly. and athletes? Because it's such a gap yeah. between what he was playing against. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I mean, I remember I remember being well, the one thing that was good about the under 20 tournament that I recall was it what there weren't. I don't even remember if there were any other prospects. I do remember it was Russia, Turkey, Italy and Greece. I don't remember any other prospects in those games, but I also remember thinking, okay, this is a reasonably good level of, you know, like a college game. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Watching him that night, I was thinking of it as like almost like a college game. You know, you got some of the better kids in these countries that would be good college players. So it's kind of interesting how it all shake shook out. Um, I want to ask you about uh, draft and stash. Mm-hmm. When you, when you get to the league and you're with the Grizzlies, Give me what you learned or, and I noticed the mechanics of salaries and buyouts explain draft and stash to somebody who's listening on the podcast. Yeah. Basically if you have a crowd on your roster, one of the things you can do is draft a European player and not necessarily bring them over right away. And what, because generally they're already under contract over there. So in other words, they can't just show up and sign the tender what an American player could do. And then you either like lose their rights or you have to have them on their, on your team. They have a contract that has a buyout and whatnot. So they're, they're usually kind of locked in over there for at least a little bit. And so what you can do is draft them, retain their rights, and then potentially bring them over to your team later. Um, we did, we did that twice. Um, my first year there, we drafted a Eurocamp guy, actually, Giannis Timo, with the last pick in, yeah, the, in the second yeah. round. Yeah. Um, and the we shooter. ended up, we, yeah, we ended up, uh, yeah, you know, not quite an NBA player, but he's ended up having a good, uh, good really? overseas career. Exactly. We ended up trading him effectively for Matt Barnes, which is a move that probably got us to the playoffs in, <laughs> in uh, 17. So, yeah. uh, you know, it, it worked. It I mean, off. that's one of the things. They're, they're like, a, you yeah. know, a stable form of currency that you can use uh, later on. 
Um, and then uh, we, we also drafted uh, Roddy Zagaratz uh, a, a little later on. We kept him overseas for a year uh, and then brought him over. And I, I, we were in a roster crunch and we, I'm 2020 hindsight. I mean, we brought him over too soon. Um, and he, he wasn't quite, quite ready. And we ended up, uh, waving him. Um, he's still playing overseas. He's an amazing kid. Um, he's had some injuries over there. Unfortunately, he's playing for a, a partisan in uh, Belgrade. Uh, so, um, yeah, but the, the, I mean, the basic idea though, I mean, both those years we did that, I mean, we were facing issues with, with our roster size where, it, it really didn't behoove us to take on another American player and try to put him on a roster that season. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and it was second round both times. It was 60th pick with Tima and 35th pick with Zagorats. Yeah. I remember um, Minnesota one year had the 31st pick and they took Pekovic. And I remember, you know, someone telling me from Minnesota, the second, the first pick of the second round is almost like having a second lottery pick for international guys. Cause you can often get a guy at 31 yeah. And well, th- that that was brilliant because at that time, international salaries were a little higher relative to NBA salaries. And so if you drafted somebody in the 20s, it was actually hard to get them over because a lot of them were able to make more money in Europe. Whereas at 31, they weren't subject to the rookie salary cap. So Minnesota could take Pekovic and, you know, I think they started him at like five million a year or something when they brought him over. And that was enough to to grenade him out of Europe, basically. But you remember San Antonio's situation with Tiago Splitter, where they drafted him in the 20s and basically couldn't get him out for three years because those first three years he was subject to the rookie salary cap. And he just couldn't like they just couldn't make the the money work anywhere near what he could make overseas. And uh, after three years, that goes away. And that's why they were able to eventually bring him over. Yeah, I, I could be wrong about Splitter, but I think the agent had a, he, the, he, it, you know, the agent was in cahoots with the club because he was going to get part of the buyout. And, like, there oh, was, yeah, that's there, that's there happened was, once or twice. Yeah, yeah. there was like it was like there was like a reason that an agent would not want the kid to actually come over because he was going to get a lot of money from the I think there was something with Splitter like it, he was kind of like in limbo because. The agent was in cahoots with his club, as I recall. So it's kind of, you know, it's kind of interesting how the Europeans work because they, yeah. they think yeah. differently. You know, they, they think a little bit more like uh, creatively. Sometimes. Well, you know, then you have the situation in, uh, with Megalex in Serbia, right? Oh, yeah. Where the agent owns the team, right? So he's gonna, like, yeah, he gets be, paid twice. <laughs> I've, I've actually gotten to be friendly with, uh, with Mishko, the agent. And uh, yeah. every year now, I don't know if you know this scam and it's not a scam. It's really a great idea. He takes his team to uh, uh, Atlantis. And, oh, yeah. Plays that preseason tournament. And, sure. And, yes. yeah. and this year, I think Indiana, Mike Woodson's taking Indiana over to Atlantis uh, mm-hmm. you know, in the next couple of weeks. And uh, yeah. So it's really a vacation for Mega before they actually even start training camp. Yeah. And, and the other thing is, though, I mean, we, because I remember we, my last year that like we sent our scouts to that. Exactly. Because it was like an easy way to get eyes on on Mega. Like we, I, I want to say we had a guy who was based in Miami. He was like, okay, 45 minute flight. Like, sure. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I think, yeah. I think Goga Batadze I saw there. Yeah. Then no, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. Goga yeah. was on that team. Yeah, right? That was cool. And, and, and again, they always going to have prospects. Was Zaga, was Zagarach, I think he was a mega. Was he not? The guy? He was mega. Yeah. Yeah. He was yeah, mega absolutely. also. So that, that's yeah. really cool. All right. Let me ask you again, John, we're, gonna, we're not going to keep you long, but I could talk to you for hours and hours <laughs> and you're busy. Um, you are high, as am I, on a young guy. And actually, it's kind of interesting how, you know, guys are risers. I love I love that term. He's, he's rising. No, you just figured out that he could play. You know, it took, <laughs> right, right. It took until July, <laughs> but you figured it out. Uh, I'm, I'm half joking about that. Guys do rise, right? Uh, Dayron Sharp's rising because all of a sudden they say he's in great shape. I, I always liked him, but now he's the, he's the new hot, high riser. Um, and I'm a fan, actually, but you're but you're a fan of Alperin Shingun, yeah. who is he's just maybe turned 19. He's 6'10", 240. When you watch him on tape, you think he's there's no way he can be an NBA. He's not he's not the modern NBA big guy. That's yeah. what people are saying. That's what they said early. Now, I think people's tunes have changed, probably in part because of people like you who make people take a second look. Tell me about Shangun and what you like about him because I think you got him in the top five. Yeah, yeah, I'm fourth on my board. I'm okay. I'm, I'm probably an outlier there. Yeah, um, but to me, uh, with 
So you asked about analytics and Europeans before. I mean, the one thing that's been super consistent is guys who destroy a, Euro a good European league as teenagers, like the fail rate is zero. Okay. Like th those guys all turn out to be players where, you know, you can go back to Tony Kukoc or whatever, like, like the, 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 those guys aren't going to miss. Right. Like, you know, and maybe there are other guys who end up being, you know, bigger stars or better players or yeah. whatever, but we'll get, this Gallinari, guy's going to be something in the league. Okay. Yeah, Doncic um, is obvious, but Kalinari was like that. I mean, he was in the, he was in the Italian yeah. league at Milan. You, Yusuf Nurkic. Yeah. Nurkic, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, and so to me, I like, I think his skill level gets underestimated a little like, yeah, he scores a lot on the block, but he can, you watch him. Like he can handle the ball. He can pass. He can shoot. He's going to be able to stretch out to the three-point line. You know, maybe not when he's 19, but by the time he's 23, 24, like, yeah, I mean, you watch him shoot free throws. You watch him shoot catch and shoots. Like, he's going to be able to do that. Um, and, like, the overall game just kind of reminds me a lot of Kevin Love and in terms of a guy who can who can overwhelm people on the block, but he's skilled enough to do other things and – you know, people are going to use Jokic, but like, there's only one Jokic, like let's not get too carried away, but he he's that kind of like high skill, big, where you can put him in a lot of actions and do different things with him offensively. Now, the question is going to be with him at the defensive end where he, he has to get better at that end. There's, there's no question. And so that, that's always a concern with, with bigs in today's game, especially when you get to the postseason, is he going to get played off the floor but like, from my perspective, if your biggest worry is, is can I start this guy in the postseason? Like you're already at a pretty good spot, yeah, right? Yeah. Like yeah. that's, yeah. that's a pretty high level worry, right? Yeah. Um, you know, especially where, I mean, you look at the draft, I mean, the, the fail rate is higher than people would like to admit, right. even on relatively high picks. Yeah. And do so see, do you see any Vucevic in him? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, a, that's a great comparison. I don't know if he'll shoot quite as well as, as Vooch does, but yeah. I, I think he can do some of the other stuff as a passer operating from the elbows. Yeah. And then I think he can be even better on the block. Yeah. And I'm actually high on his shooting like you are. Like I, I just think that uh, what I've seen, you know, in the sample size and talking to people who I know over there, they, they think that it's just something he hasn't needed yet because he's overwhelmed these yeah. guys on the block. And here's something interesting, John, I've said this and you may have heard me say it. There's 30 former NBA players in the Turkish league, you know, including Shane Larkin and others. And he's the MVP. Yeah. The 18 -year -old. yeah. That's yeah. insane. You know, that's insane. You got Meechitz over there. You got, F, you know, Ephes uh, winning the Euro league. And obviously, yeah, Fenerbahce. I mean, he's playing against Ephes yeah. and Fenerbahce who are like two of the absolute best teams in Europe. And, and honestly, yeah. like that Turkish league is like a decently deep league. Like you get into the, you know, you get into their second tier, you're still playing against Darussa Faka and some of these other teams. Like the, those are good teams who are pretty competitive across Europe. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I tell people that other than the Euro League and, and the ACB, it's 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 the third best league in Europe. I think it's better. You know, France has the athletes, but I think to your point, and when I went down the list of the 16 or so teams in the TBL, almost every one of them had at least one or two, in some cases, three X NBA players. Yeah. So, you know, every night, and you know, I, I want my, it's interesting. I, I, I love this anecdotal stuff. Um, Amat Mbai, who played at mm -hmm. Oklahoma, who's a French kid uh, and is playing really well in the Turkish league. He was actually on Olympic team, this French Olympic team. And he had to withdraw because he has to have surgery. But he, I, I was talking to Amat and he said, he's the strongest guy I've played against in Turkey. Like, Here's an 18-year-old kid, and he said, the strongest guy I've played against. And Kyle Wilcher, another ex-NBA yeah. player, also I asked him, and he said, no, nah, coach, mm -hmm. he's going to make it. You know, he's a good player. So sometimes you you marry the analytics with the educated eye. You also need somebody on the ground, yeah. if you will, yeah. to validate. Yeah. And, and again, validate one of the things I go back to is that size translates from Europe. Like, if he's able to score against those bigs over there, because every team over there has a behemoth center who's you know, who's like seven foot or seven one and everything. It might not be the fastest guy in the world, but like can can play one on one on the block, right? And so if he's able to score against those guys, like he's going to be able to do the same thing over here. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I, I'm pretty. I'm, I'm I'm in agreement with you. And you know, I never worry about the defense because, like, yeah, there's no question his foot speed could be a little bit better. But he's gonna, you know, that's the uh, that's the uh, that's that's the job of a coach to put him in kind of coverages, drop coverages, and things like that. Where, 
he's not quite as exposed. And uh, unlike our USA team, who's switching everything, and we got Dame Lillard guarding, you know, Rudy Gobert on the block, but Pops won a lot of championships, and I haven't. Just offering a little piece of advice there. Yeah. You know? Uh, we don't have to switch at all five positions. Uh, Josh Giddy, from what you can see of Giddy and what you know of the, uh, you know, the NBL, give me your sense of. Yeah, Josh, Josh Giddy's interesting because I think really strong strengths and then a couple of kind of iffy weaknesses. Um, I, I was able to see him at Basketball Without Borders uh, in Chicago right before the pandemic hit. Uh, and like he was. He was pretty good there, like like tall, thin body, but can pass, can handle the ball a little bit uh, and like has some like even though he's like a skinny guy, and not super athletic, like definitely like has some toughness to him and some grit. Um, and that's one of the things first things that people down there will talk about with him. Uh, I think the thing you worry about is, is the shooting going to come around? Uh, it's kind of this, you know, push shot off his forehead with the elbow out. Uh, I think that's going to need a little work. And then that shot is so important because that's really where you weaponize the rest of his game. If he has the threat of a shot and you have to play close to him, now you can put him in pick and rolls and do some stuff with him and really take advantage of his skill as a passer. Uh, And then definitely not a super athlete. I mean, being six, eight helps, but uh, you you worry a little about that end too. Is he going to be exposed on defense? Uh, You know, how's, how's he going to manage it at that end? Uh, I, I want, I say I had him 10th on my board. Um, I, you know, I, I think he's, he's kind of, he's kind of the last guy before the cliff in this draft, I think where, you know, right at, right after 10, the quality really starts getting a little shakier. So yeah. it's going to be interesting to see what happens like with him it. on Thursday night. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. I, I don't see superstar. I, I don't even see stardom. I see solid starter, you know, in time, yeah. you know, kind of reminds me of a, uh, I remember when Tomas Satoransky was young and coming to Euro camp yeah. and Tomas got a little more bounce straight, straight line speed Satoransky. I mean, one thing you said, was like, this guy's six, seven and he can cook like end to end. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I actually think Josh, well, this is not a, this is not a, this is not saying much, but he's Josh is actually a better, than <laughs> yeah. but that's really what kept Tomas from being, you know, the player that we all uh, fell in love with at the, yeah. At Eurocamp. All right. Uh, Garuba, do you have a feel on Garuba, the youngster from Madrid? Yeah, I mean, a little harder because he has to stay kind of within a box at, at Madrid where he's a defensive player, role player. They have him shooting more corner threes this year, which is interesting. Um, I do like when you see some of the clips of him doing stuff with the ball, it's kind of interesting. It kind of hints at like, OK, this guy could maybe do more stuff. If he, you know, if, if he got a little more opportunity and, he, and he's still so young. So I, I think he's really, I mean, certainly a first rounder in, in, in my opinion. And, uh, you know, because of the, like the defensive potential alone, I think he's going to be able to guard the position. The question is, what are you going to get up, get from him at the offensive end? So might be like a little projecty at, at that end, but I think the defense might be good enough that you can still play him right away. So, so I, I'd look for him maybe late teens. Yeah, I'm with you. You know, the, what I liked about him this year, was he played with Walter Tavares, a seven four mm-hmm. kid, and he had to play on a perimeter. And I actually have high hopes for his shooting, uh, you know, because he showed us a little bit more. His, it, obviously, they work with him on his form, and he was not hesitant. And I do think if that can become, if that can, if he can be a 35, 36% three point shooter, I would take that every day of the week. And I also go back to this, John. He's 18 years old in, in the ACB. Yeah. yeah. You know, and yeah. contribute. And, and when, know, when 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 guys when guys are playing in high level leagues as teenagers, I mean that's yeah, that usually is a really great sign. I mean that usually does correlate with NBA success. Yeah, yeah it kind of speaks to what you said earlier. Um, all right, I have one guy in mind in the second round that I like. I want to see if is there anybody, any other international guys that you looked at um, that you say I think this kid could make it or. I think those seem to be the first. There's one guy I think could sneak into the first round. Rokas Jokobaitis, uh, Lithuanian. Uh, I think he yeah. just signed with Barcelona. And uh, yes, yeah. reminds me a little bit of a guy we had in Memphis by the name of Beno Udri. Um, he's, you know, he might be a little more of a two than than one relative to, to Beno, but uh, got that same kind of like a, a ability to, to, to convert in the in-between game, which, which I think is like Beno wasn't a great three-point shooter, but he was so good on pull-ups and he'd be, you know, 
somehow he'd be like 45 degrees to the ground shooting a pull up and would get it to bank and go in and you're scratching your head. Like, how do you do that? Um, and I, I think he has some of that in, in his game. And so I think he's an interesting, but I like, I think he's probably a stash and you know, he's going to be playing for Barcelona and can feel good about exactly. that. Um, yeah. So I think he could go late first, early second. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm, I feel the same way. He knows how to play. He's, he's tough because he's Lithuanian. Remember when uh, international guys used to be soft? I don't know what happened to that stereotype. <laughs> but, uh, but no, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. And I love the idea that he's already signed in Barcelona because to your point, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, even if a team took him in the first round, he really doesn't count until he comes over. Right? Yeah, exactly. Because he'd, yeah. like, he'd have to pay – He'd have to pay his own buyout on his contract that he just signed, which is, I mean, generally the first year you sign with, with the team, the buyout's going to be massive if, if there even is one. Um, so you can feel pretty confident that he's, he's not coming over right away. So there are definitely some teams like with luxury tax and roster situations when you get into the late 20s um, that are probably pretty okay with drafting somebody and just leaving them over in Europe a year or two. Yeah. Yeah. Or be that, you know, second round lottery guy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Early second round. I'm, I'm with you. We we concur on all four of those guys. John, I really appreciate it. I know you're – I'm reading your stuff. I know you're swamped. Uh, I'm sure you're getting the uh, opportunity to do a lot of, you know, radio and whatever, but always appreciated uh, – I always appreciate your uh, viewpoint on basketball. I, you have the same passion I think I do, and uh, I've, I've enjoyed listening to you and Chad. I was walking <laughs> yesterday listening to the uh, mock draft. That was – always educational. And so, uh, but I, again, appreciate that you came on and it was, it was great to catch up. All right. Thanks for having me on the show for This is fantastic. Many thanks to uh, John Hollinger for a great uh, nearly an hour of very smart basketball talk. Um, and he is a very smart basketball man. So we thank John. Remember, if you like what we're doing, please, uh, you know, subscribe to our podcast. You can subscribe on Apple, Spotify, uh, other places, uh, download the Sirius XM app where you can go back and hear many of the previous 58 World of Basketball podcasts. Uh, two of those guys are uh, that we've had on the podcast are likely uh, to be called in the lottery. Josh Giddy, the Australian sensation, a 6'8 point guard, and Germany's Franz Wagner, uh, the Michigan uh, small forward. Uh, both of those guys uh, were just terrific guests on our podcast, and we wish them the very best of luck. I will be part of Sirius XM NBA radio's draft coverage for only seven hours on, on, the, on draft night. And many of you will be listening to this podcast on the day of the draft. And if uh, you listen a little bit later, sorry about that, but uh, you, by now, you know, that I've uh, been immersed in draft coverage as well as the Olympic uh, coverage. So uh, with that, enjoy the podcast and enjoy the Olympics, enjoy the draft. And I promise you next week, I will bring you to another place in my world of basketball. World of basketball is part of the Sirius XM podcast network. The executive producer is Chris Tyler sound designed by Robert Moore. Andy King is the director of sports podcasting for Sirius XM. A special thanks also to Sirius XM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Mr. Steve Cohen. Sirius XM Podcasts.